Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 25 is where we'll be reading from. So you find it there. Follow along in your Bible as I read. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 25, verse 6. And this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation... The prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things with which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming ourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. 
grass withers and and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 25. Uh, now flip back in your Bible to Romans. Romans chapter 3 is where we're at. Romans chapter 3, and we are beginning the next big section uh, that Paul has here in his letter to the Romans. Last week we we reviewed what we have learned uh, in the first section, and this week we want to get into this new section. And uh, this new section... Uh, really begins in verse 19. Now, I know we covered verse 19 and 20 as a part of the first point that Paul made, but these two verses, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, have a dual role in this letter to the Romans. It concludes Paul's first point, your need of justification, and they introduce Paul's second point, Uh, the application of justification, how justification is applied uh, to a person. And so remember, Paul has already established that all men, including the Jew, need justification because all men are under the wrath of God because of their sin. And so in this next section, this new section that we're studying, Paul is going to explain how God God is justifying people, how his justification is applied or obtained by a person. That this justification is available to any person, is available to all people, whether Jew or Greek. So just as all are under the wrath of God, all are in line for judgment because of their sin, God has made available justification for all. So in this section, which is going to run from chapter 3, verse 19, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25, we see this basic outline. This is the basic outline. In chapter 3, 19 through 31, we see justification is by grace through faith. So at the end of chapter 3, that's what we see. Justification is by grace through faith. Justification comes through God's grace, and justification is applied to the individual, to the person who believes, who has faith. The second point in the outline is all of chapter 4. In all of chapter 4, we have the illustration of Abraham. So Paul uses Abraham as his illustration of a person who is justified by grace through faith. So there's, that's the two main points here. So if you get that, you, you, you've sort of been able to grasp the big idea that Paul is presenting here in these 
verses that justification is by grace through faith and that Abraham is an illustration of that. Now, in the, in the last verses, I, I should say, uh, in this section of chapter 3, there are three things that we see here. Okay? There's three things we're going to see here. We're going to see that faith, this word faith, is the operative word when it comes to being justified. So justified, justification, and faith go together. And faith is the operative word for your justification. Secondly, we see that works of the law don't contribute to being justified whatsoever. The works of the law do not contribute to your justification at all. This is an interesting point to think about because as uh, we have talked about, uh, Paul in this portion of the letter, he's really focusing in on the Jew. And uh, no Jew would believe that any Gentile could ever be justified by doing what is right. Okay, the Jew would not think that at all. They wouldn't think, well, if this Gentile over here would just do good works, he would be justified. They wouldn't think that. What the Jew thought was that if they kept the law, they could be justified. They would be justified before God. And so Paul is going to be pointing out in these verses that the idea that anyone could be justified by the works of the law is absolutely false. It's untrue. Works cannot justify you. Works of the law cannot justify you. A third thing that we see here in these verses is that being justified by faith doesn't void or nullify the law. Doesn't, doesn't take the law out. Okay, if you understand why God gave Israel the law, you see that it actually fits right in with Paul's message of justification. Okay, so faith isn't nullifying the law. The law still has its place. The law still has, is going to accomplish what God planned for it to accomplish. And so this gives you a little bit of the insight into this particular section that is on justification by grace through faith. Now, if you look at uh, the title there in your notes, okay, I've I got to make a correction there. I think in, on the top of your notes it says Romans, that the text is Romans three nineteen through 26. Scratch out the 26 and put 4, chapter 4, verse 25 there. Because this is, sort of includes this whole section. We're, we're obviously not going to go through that whole section this morning unless I've been possessed by something. Um, we go a little bit slower than that. Uh, but I, that's the, this is the section that I want us to have in view, and you'll notice that the the title there for the message is righteousness, faith, etc. Three words: righteousness, faith, etc. The reason that I put it that way is because there's about nine words that I want us to consider this morning. 
Okay, and I didn't want to put all nine words there, so I just shortened it up. So that word, etc., stands for about seven words. Okay, but you see that in your notes. You see those words in your notes, and I'm sure you can you can put it together. You know, I want to focus on these words here this morning because this is going to set this will set us up for studying this passage. Okay, it sets us up for studying this passage. And it's important that we understand what these words mean. Because these key words that we see here in this passage are a kind of Christianese. Okay? These are words that Christians use. And most other people don't know what these words mean. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we don't really know what these words mean. We just read them in our Bible and we... Talk, uh, use them as like we know what we're talking about. But they're, they're really just a church language, church language. And do you know the Bible was never written with the intention of it being church language? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the Bible was written in the everyday common language of the people, not in some highfalutin ecclesiastical church language that Unless you're initiated, you don't understand. That's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written in the plain, everyday language of the people. And so we need to understand these Christianese words, and we need to put that in some common language and some common terms, bring it down to our level so that we see what Paul is actually saying here. So the first word I want us to look at this morning is the word law. Law. Look at verse 19 with me. We know that whatever the law says. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is Paul talking about when he says the law? He says, we know that whatever the law says, we better know what the law is talking about. Is that talking about Rocky Mount City ordinances? No, of course it's not talking about that. It's not talking about... Our Constitution of the United States as the law. So what is what does Paul mean by the law here? Well, we know that the term law, the term law, appears in our New Testament 196 times. 75 of those times it's in the book of Romans. Now that's pretty significant. Seventy-five times the word law appears in the book of Romans. That's almost 40% of the times that this word is used in the New Testament. In our passage here this morning, or I should say in chapter 3 and 4, this word law is used 16 times. So this is a very important word. And when we think about law, what, what, does, what does that word mean, law? There's two basic aspects to the meaning of the word law. Number one, I think maybe I gave you this in your notes. Number one, it is a body of collected regulations, ordinances, and rules. Okay, so we talk about traffic, the traffic law, right? So traffic law says when you come to a a stop sign, you do what? Stop. The law says you stop. 
Okay? The law says, when it says 55 miles an hour, you can drive 8 miles over. Right? Is that the law? <laughs> no, you're supposed to drive 50. That's telling you the speed limit is 55 miles. That's the law. So this is an example. It's a body. All those laws put together that regulate our driving, it's a body of collected regulations, ordinances, or rules. The second way that the term law is used is in reference to a single regulation, a single ordinance, a single rule. So if you think of the Ten Commandments when it says, you shall not murder... That's one law, right? That's one law. So that's how it's used. Now, uh, that's the general meaning of the word law. But when we see this term in our Bibles, there's four basic ways that we see it used. First, the term law is used for the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch or Torah. So think of that in your mind real quick. What's the first five books of the Bible? Just think in your head. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Together they are called the law. Okay, So that's the first way it's used in the Bible. Secondly, uh, the word law can refer to that part of the Pentateuch, that part of the Torah, which specifies the moral, civil, and ceremonial ordinances of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. So think of Exodus chapter 20 and and several chapters after that. Think of the book of Leviticus. So this is the law. This is the specific laws that were given. Thirdly, the third way that this term law is used is that it can refer to the entire Old Testament. It can refer to the entire Old Testament. So it can refer to just the first five books. It can refer to the place in the first five books where the laws are specifically given. And it can refer to the entire Old Testament. And lastly, it can just refer to the general idea of ordinances or or regulations. So those are the four basic ways that this term law is used. In the book of Romans... Everywhere it says the law. Okay, everywhere it says the law, it's referring to the Mosaic law, unless it says like the law of sin. If there are no words that describe the law, if it just says the law, it's referring to the Mosaic law. It's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, we also need to understand that when Paul uses this word law, he uses it in groups. Okay? He uses it, he groups them together. He uses it a bunch of times in one single place. Let me illustrate. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Okay? Romans chapter 3. Verses 19 through 21, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to count how many times the word law appears in those verses. Romans uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. 
That's 10 seconds. That, that's a, actually, it's not, but you get the point. So you just counted them real, there real quick, right? The word law appears five times there. Five times. It's all clustered together in a group. Uh, look down to verses 27 through 31. Do the same thing. Count the times that the word law appears. Verse 27 through 31. It appears five more times here. Five more times. And finally, you don't look there, but in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, it appears four times, all clustered together. What's my point there? My point is to show you that when Paul uses this term law, he uses it collected together. He's trying to make a certain point, either positively or negatively, about the law. So why is this all important? Why is it under, important to understand what the law is, what Paul refers to when he speaks of the law? What's well, important to understand in our passage, in chapter 3, verse 19, that Paul is referring to the Mosaic Law. This tells us that his focus is going to be on the Jews in some particular way because they are the people to whom the Mosaic Law was given. Since they are the ones who are under the law, these are the ones who do the works of the law. And Paul is bringing up the Mosaic law on purpose in order to contrast the works of the law with faith. And so that is why it's important. He's bringing up this term law to show the Jews that while the law may give you some advantages, it gives you no advantage when it comes to your justification. While the law is good, it does not provide for your justification. You cannot obey the law, do all the law says, and be justified before God. So every time you see this phrase in the book of Romans, when you see the words, the law, think the Mosaic law. So that's our first word, important word. To think about. A lot of times, what do we do when we come to that word? We just read right over top of it, don't we? We don't pause. We don't hesitate. We just right through it. No one's justified by the works of the law. Keep going. But we need to stop and think, what does Paul mean by that? Second word I want us to consider this morning is the word guilty. The word guilty. This is also found in verse 19. Look at the end of the verse that all the world may become guilty before God. This is the only place in the entire Bible this word appears. It's the only place, and it means to be under indictment. So it's a legal word. It's a courtroom setting word. And so he's saying here all the world is under indictment. It's under criminal charges. Now let me ask you a question. When it says all the world here, is anybody excluded? No. No. So here's Paul's point. He has just proved without a shadow of doubt that all those dirty Gentiles, well, they are guilty. 
But then he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. Who's that? The Jews. So whatever the law says, it's, it's for those who are under the law. It's for the Jews. Why does it do that? So that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. It's a foregone conclusion that the Gentiles are guilty before God. And Paul's point here is to show that the Jews, that God has given them the law so they understand they are guilty before God as well. So when it says all the world, it means all the world. Nobody is excluded. Uh, This word shows that all people are accountable to God. If you're guilty, it means you have some type of accountability. It also shows that all people are in line for God's judgment. If you are under indictment, you haven't received the penalty yet. The penalty is to come. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're guilty. Anybody who hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior is guilty. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not guilty. That isn't to say that we never feel any guilt, but rather that your standing in God's courtroom is a standing of not guilty. You're no longer under indictment for your sins. Think of it this way. Sins are crimes against God. They're crimes against God. And so you are under indictment. You have been charged with the crime of sin against God. And so this is the word guilty. By the way, it goes right in with what we're going to learn about the words justified and righteousness. So let's take a look at those words here. I just collected them together under one point here. So this is verses 20 and 21. The words justified, or we could say justify, and righteousness. Verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So notice we have justified in verse 20 and righteousness in verse 21. This word justified or justify is used 39 times in the Bible, in the New Testament, I should say. 27 are used by Paul. This word justified or justify appears seven times in our passage that we're studying. This this passage that we're studying, seven times. The word righteousness is a little bit more common. It appears in the New Testament 93 times. 93 times. That's that's quite, quite a bit. It appears 12 times. Twelve times in our passage that we're studying here this morning, or that we're at least looking at here this morning. Twelve times. What uh, 
What's 12 plus 7? 19 times. So these two words appear 19 times in this context. That's pretty important, don't you think? That's a lot of times that this word appears. We should understand something about it. So here's what this, these words mean. Here's what these words mean. The word justify means to declare right or to pronounce as righteous. This word does not mean to impart righteousness to someone. It's not the impartation of righteousness. That's not what the word justify means. That's a different word and a different concept, but it's not what this word means. This word justify is a legal word, a judicial word. It describes the rendering of a judgment. The judgment of being acquitted. The judgment of having the charges dismissed. So again, think about it. Think about an illustration of crime in a courtroom here. Sin is a crime. It's the crime against God. Because of that, charges are brought against you. That's the word guilty. You're charged with these crimes. And when you're justified, God says, acquitted. Charges dismissed. There is no case. That's what this word justify means. The word righteousness is actually the noun form of the word justify. These two words are related together. They come from the same root, justifies the verb. Righteousness is the noun. The term righteousness means the quality or characteristic of being right according to the standard by which one is to be judged. To be right according to the standard by which one is to be judged. So righteousness is a standard. It is the standard. By the way, to be righteous, to be righteous means you've met the standard. It means to have righteousness. So righteous, to be righteous means you have righteousness. Righteousness is something that God possesses and it's also something that he requires of man. God's standard for man is his righteousness. His righteousness is God's standard for man. What he is holding man to, man, God's right requirements for man. And so we need to understand these words and we need to think about them and how they are used. Now, when I say the term justify or justification, automatically our, most of our minds go to salvation, don't they? But do you realize this word doesn't always refer to salvation? It's impossible that it always refers to salvation. Because of that, we have to be careful to understand what it's talking about. Let me illustrate this point. Hold your finger here. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16.
This is a uh, either a hymn or a creed from the early church. Notice what it says. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. So, that, so we know that this is talking about Jesus Christ, right? God was manifested in the flesh. Talking about Jesus Christ. Notice the next line. Justified in the Spirit. So this is talking about Jesus Christ, and it says that He is justified in the Spirit. Is that talking about salvation? No, it can't be talking about salvation because Jesus doesn't need saved. Let me give you another example. Flip back to Romans. Flip back to Romans, but I want you to go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. This is talking about God the Father. It says, Certainly not indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Does God the Father need justified? Of course not. Of course not. So you get my point. The point is that just because we see the word justify, justification, doesn't always mean it's talking about salvation. So we have to be very careful when we see this word justification. Because if we're not careful with it, it could possibly lead us to thinking that we can be justified by works, which is not true. So this is how this word is used. Now, why is this so important for us to understand why are both of these words so important for us to understand? First of all, just on a very surface level, they are so frequent in our passage. If you don't understand these two words, you're not going to understand this passage at all. In fact, you're not going to understand the whole letter to the Romans if you don't understand these two words. Secondly, it's important because of its re their relationship to our salvation. When we see the word justify, the subject, of justify the the one who performed the act of justification is always God the Father and the object of this act of justification is always the one who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their savior if i can put that in a slightly different way no one can justify themselves you have to be justified. God the Father has to justify you. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot. It would be like you going to court and you're the defendant and you just stand up in the middle of the court and you say, charge is dismissed. That's not, you can't do it. You can't do it. God is the only one who can justify us. By the way, the order of justification is faith and then justification. You first believe, you first put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are justified. One of Paul's main concerns in this passage is how one is justified before God. What is it that would 
uh, allow God or cause God to justify a person? What is it? And we find the only condition, the only reason that God would justify anybody is by believing or trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. This word righteousness now, which is related to the word justify and justification, we see that it's connected to our salvation through faith. It's connected to missing salvation. If you do not have the righteousness of God, you cannot be saved. You're not saved. It's related to Christ's work on the cross. It is related to our position in Jesus Christ. These two words, justify and justification, related words, connect, they have the same root, connected words. If we don't understand it, we totally miss the point of Paul. And, and these are Christianese words. How many of you used either of these terms this week outside of some type of spiritual or Christian context? We don't. We don't even use it in our court system. And that would be the most appropriate place to use it since these are legal words. We don't use it. This is Christianese. How do you explain to someone who either is unfamiliar with their Bible or doesn't know the Bible what it means when they read you're justified by faith? How do you explain justification to them? We need to know what that means. Uh, the next set of words I want us to consider here this morning is the words faith and believe. Faith is the noun. Believe is the verb. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith, that's the noun, and Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, that's the verb, for there is no difference. So just like justification and righteousness are related, share the same root, faith and believe are related, sharing uh, uh, the same root between those two words. Both of these words are used over 240 times in our New Testament. Uh, the word faith is used 40 times in the book of Romans. It is used 18 times in our passage. The word faith is used 18 times in our passage here this morning. The word believe is used seven times. So that's 25 times altogether. Super important, super common word in our passage that we must understand. By the way, trivia. So next time you pay, play Bible Trivia Pursuit, you, you might have this question. The word faith appears at least once in every book of the Bible, or I should say the New Testament, every book of the New Testament, except for three. There's three books of the New Testament that do not have the word faith in it. Second John, third John, and here's a shocker, the Gospel of John. You believe that? The word faith never appears, that's the noun, never appears in the Gospel of John. The verb believe, related to faith, but 
the verb appears a hundred times in the Gospel of John. Anyway, a little Bible trivia there. So here's this word, these words, faith and belief. Well, now, what do, do they mean? What do they mean? Faith, the noun, means this. Faith is the trust that a person has in someone or something. It's the trust. The word believe means to trust. It's the action. It's the action word of faith. To trust or to believe or to rely upon. Um, With the verb here, to believe, with this action word, to believe, this involves an acknowledgement of the truth or the reality of information, the truth of facts, with a view, with the view to act upon it. So let me illustrate. When you came in this morning, well, I'll just say this morning, there was at least two times that you exercised faith. When you got in your car, put your key in the ignition, and you turned it. Okay, you were exercising faith, weren't you? There was a set of facts. Okay, my car ran yesterday. The battery was charged yesterday. I expect, I believe that when I get in, I turn the key, it's going to go. And so when you knew that information, and so what did you do when you got in your car? You turned the key. You never even thought about it. You just got in and turned the key because that is your faith in action. That is believing. Then this morning, when you got into church, did anybody here, before you sat down, press on your chair? Anybody? No. No, because the information that you understand about that chair says it'll hold you. Okay? But that's just information. That's not faith. That's not believing. When you actually sat down and you put your entire weight on that chair. This is faith. It's the truth, the reality of the facts combined with an action, a decision of the will to act. This is what faith is. And why is this so important? I would think that probably for most of us it's obvious why these words are important. But most importantly, when we understand faith and believe, we see that the most important thing, the thing of the highest gravity, is not the word itself. Because faith or believing always has to be in an object. And so the object of your faith is actually more important than your faith. And for salvation, the object of your faith must be in Jesus Christ. The verse says, through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith and believing are the operative words in our salvation and our sanctification. How is the salvation that God has provided applied to you? Through you believing, through you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. How are you to live the Christian life? By faith, by trusting 
God. We are people of faith. Well, I got three more words, and I'm just going to hold off on them. The word send, sin, I've combined that together. That's an important word here because that is expressing why we need justification. And then we have two really, really Christian words, redemption and propitiation. I bet you if we all tried to say propitiation at one time, 25% of us couldn't say it. (laughs) Probably I'd be one of those if I had to do it all together. But uh, we'll save those. We'll we'll talk about those words when we come to them. But I want you to see this morning. Here's the. If you haven't gotten anything else this morning, I want you to get this. Words matter. Words matter. If I say to you, go get the car, and you understand me to say, go get a loaf of bread, we got problems. And our problems is our vocabulary and definition. Words matter. And how words are used matter. How words are used in the Bible matters. For example, what if I say to you, did you see the bank? What am I talking about? Am I talking about the place where they keep money? Am I talking about the side of a river? Or am I talking about how an airplane turns? The definition of words matter and how they are used matters. We have to look at the context in which these words appear in order to understand them. You cannot understand the Bible unless you understand the words of the Bible. And you cannot understand the words of the Bible unless you understand the definition of those words. And you cannot understand the what those words mean unless you study them in the passages in which they appear. You just can't take for granted that you got it all together and that you understand Christianese. My, by understanding words, how are they, they are used in the Bible, it helps us to not only understand what is being taught, but it also keeps us from making errors in our understanding of the Bible. And so we need to be careful that we understand the words of the Bible in their context. I think if we do that, then our knowledge and appreciation of God will grow. I think if we understand the words of the Bible in the context in which they appear, our knowledge and appreciation of what our salvation cost God will increase. When we look at these words and we understand what words like redemption, justification, and propitiation mean, when we understand their meaning and their context, our gratitude for our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that He died to provide for us will grow. We'll we'll have more and more thanks. And all of this will be expressed in our worship of our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. Not necessarily public worship, but in our hearts we will praise and magnify 
the Lord. So this is just to set the stage for what is to come next week. We're going to pick up in verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19 next week. And um, I hope to get through verse 26. But understanding these words, you've got to keep these words in your mind, okay? And so maybe you might need to take a three by five card or something like that and jot down the definitions that I've given you in your notes. Jot those definitions down. Keep them in a three by five card. Keep them in your Bible where you can find them so you know what these big words, these Christianese words mean. Because we are Christians, and a lot of times we speak Christianese to one another. But the world out there and actually, many people in the church don't understand Christianese at all. And God did not give us His Word to make it difficult to understand, to uh, disguise the meaning. He gave us His Word in the plain language of the people, and that's what we want to do too. Stand with me as we close in a word of prayer. Father, we give You thanks for this time that You have given us. And Lord, as we consider these words this morning and uh, just basically scratch the surface of them to give us some idea about the meaning of these words and how Paul will be using them in the passage we are going to be studying, Lord, we ask for humility in understanding them. We ask for enablement and understanding them, and most of all, we ask that we might see the significance for it. And I can't help but think about this man that we have prayed for uh, this morning and how he is guilty before you. The charges of sin are against him, but that you are offering him justification, acquittal, having those charges dismissed because of what our Lord Jesus Christ did by dying on the cross, taking our sins, His sins upon Himself so that we might have the forgiveness of those sins. And so by believing in Him, trusting in Him, Father, you say, charges dismissed. And so, Lord, we pray for this man this morning. We pray that he would be aware, he would be conscious, he would be mindful of the things around him. And, Lord, if the gospel has been presented to him, we pray that it would come to his mind this morning. We ask, too, that there might be someone there in the hospital that would come to him and share the gospel with him. And, Lord, we ask for his salvation today. Lord, be with us now as we go to our fellowship time and then Sunday school. Uh, We want these things to elevate you and exalt you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.